Welcome to the Expand with Nicole podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Hope, a health and breathwork coach who is passionate about all things wellness. My goal is to break down big information into little bites, providing you with facts and actionable steps that you can incorporate into your life right away. If you're ready to learn along with me, let's get started. So welcome back, everybody. I am very honored today to welcome Heather Hausenblas on today's podcast. Heather has her PhD and is an award-winning researcher and a health advocate who simplifies the complicated wellness world. She is the founder of Wellness Discovery Labs and is a health psychology expert, international award-winning scientist, and best-selling author. So I we connected on LinkedIn, um, and there's so many topics that Heather has covered, but I was really intrigued to discuss just her findings on autoimmune diseases and how we can help to heal ourselves. I personally know so many people who are dealing with autoimmune diseases, and I thought this topic would be great for this audience. Um, Heather wrote a book called The Invisible Disease after her son was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at age 16. And as Heather thought also, which she's going to speak to, that people feel like this is something that you have to live with forever and it's incurable, but she did her research, healed her son, and found out the meaning behind true health. So Heather, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank Welcome. you. I'm excited to be here. And thank you for everything you do for the wellness community. Oh, yes, you too. Um, let's just start by if you could tell us a bit about your background and what led you to focus um, on health psychology specifically. You know, it, it's an interesting path. Um, as a young kid, I was very, I had two brothers. I lived in, you know, northern, northern Ontario in Canada and led a very active, you know, healthy lifestyle. And I always loved kind of behaviors and psychology, did my undergraduate degree in that and wanted to learn more about like health and wellness. And we were kind of at that point in, um, in our history where for the first time, really, we were becoming extremely unhealthy. And I wanted to understand why. And that largely leads to what we're doing and what we're not doing. So I did my PhD in, in health psychology and my research has largely focused on these health behaviors like exercise, diet, sleep, you know, stress, and why we don't do things that are so good for us typically. And that oftentimes comes down to our behaviors and the psychology behind it. Most of us know that we should exercise, we should stand more during the day, we should eat more fruits and vegetables, but most of us don't do it. And that comes down to the psychology behind it. And that's what I have studied, you know, in my in my research lab and trying to understand what we can do to get people to be healthy and the whole science behind it. It's so interesting. I love learning about the psychology behind things because as I think you dive deeper, you realize that we are our own worst enemy with our mental blocks and what's prohibiting us from living these healthier lives. So I can't wait to dive deeper into this topic with you. But why don't we start with just generally, if you could, telling the audience what an autoimmune disease actually is. You know, it, it, it's a good question. I think most of us obviously have heard of an autoimmune disease. There's over 100 different autoimmune diseases. So the, the list is really, really long. I would say most people, if not everybody, know someone who, who's affected with an autoimmune disease. When you look at about one in five Americans have an autoimmune disease, and it largely affects women as well, about 75%, you know, are, are women. And kind of the classic definition of it, because it has to be broad when you're looking at over a hundred different types is when somebody's immune system mistakenly attacks itself, it attacks the tissues and the organs that it was designed to protect. And that's kind of a very general definition. And 
basically it's like, what does that mean? It means your body's not doing what it was designed to do. And it's having an effect on effect on your overall health that can be really, really detrimental. And sometimes it happens really quick, quickly. Other times it's kind of years in the making with, you know, with an autoimmune disease. And then the challenge then for people is, how do you go about to, to treat that, to get, to get healthy again? And, you know, oftentimes you say, if you've seen one autoimmune patient, you've seen one autoimmune patient. And what that means is everybody is so different when they, they come in for, you know, treatment and to try to get diagnosed. So there's really no one treatment that is going to help everybody. And that's part of the challenge with people getting healthy is what do I need to do? Is it medicine? Is it lifestyle? What is going to help me to become, you know, to become healthy again? So you would would not say that there's a common thread between all the diseases at all. No, the the common the the common thread is that the immune system is not working is not working properly. It's kind of attacking its own tissues and and organs. The body's just not the you know the immune system is not responding normally. That's kind of the general like overarching like arch to the immune diseases. But with having like over a hundred different immune diseases kind of under this classification, it's really hard to say, okay, this is the the exact specific thing. Because even if you get really specific, for example, with um, an autoimmune disease like Crohn's disease, the causes of it and the treatments of it are so different for, for pretty much every single patient. You know, you, it's almost like an individualized, you know, treatment, you know, treatment plan. So that really becomes in large part, the challenge associated with it is not only the number of people that are associated that have an autoimmune disease, but then there's no simple cure. Like there's no one type of medicine or one type of treatment that is going to help everybody. In your research, have you found that these diseases are mostly genetic or environmental, or is it a combination of the two? You know, it's, it's a it's a combination. So there obviously is a, is a genetic component associated with it, but the genetic component tends to be smaller than what most what, than what most of us think about. So typically, with a genetic component, you know, it's roughly depending upon the type of you know autoimmune disease. Let's say ten to twenty percent is the overall the overall cause big, you know, the big kind of fraction of, of the cause or the percent is really related to our environment and our behavior. So your environment, you know, where you live, do you, do you live in a polluted environment? Do you have mold within your, you know, within your house? Do you live like up north or, or down south? So that's your actual in environment or do you live in a noisy environment also? Um, and then also within that is encompassed our behaviors, which really creates the big chunk of it. It's what we're doing or not doing. So what are you eating? Do you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables or is it a largely uh, uh, processed, processed diet, which in, in, you know, here in North America, most of us eat largely a, a processed, you know, highly or ultra processed diet, which really is a lot of, you know, a lot of fast food. How much are you, you know, you're sleeping, what is your stress level? And those are ultimately related to, you know, related to our behavior. So what we're doing. So yes, there is a genetic component associated with it, but the bigger portion of of why somebody gets an autoimmune disease or does not, is really related to their environment and, and what they're doing or not doing for their health. So for people who are listening and they're now thinking like, okay, yeah, I do live in a noisy environment or I have no idea if I have mold in my house. Um, like, what would you say, what's your suggestion in starting to figure out how to combat some of the environmental aspects that maybe feel like they're out of our control a bit? 
you know, it, it, it is tough, right? Because it's not like you're going to up and go and move if you live in a noisy environment. We do know, for example, that kids that live close to airports tend to perform worse in school. Hmm. And that's because of the noise, right? The noise associated with it. And it's not like these people can then just go go and move, but there's things that you can do, right? Maybe you, you wear earplugs or if you're doing your, your schoolwork, you might go and do it, you know, somewhere a little farther away from away from home. If, you know, in your own home, you can get it tested fairly easily for, for toxins and for mold. I encourage people, you know, open your windows, you know, during the, during the day as much as possible or get outside as much as possible. The, the, the sole fact of just getting outside, especially in what I call like green space. So where there's trees and grass or in a park, or you, you add blue, which is water, just doing that alone is going to improve your mood, meaning that you will be happier. You'll say you're less anxious, less stressed, and you'll actually have more energy. And that's just the sole fact of getting outside and getting in these, getting in these spaces. And it's interesting, even from a, an exercise standpoint, people are more likely to, to exercise or to move when they're outside versus inside. And I say to parents who want to get their kids to become more active, I say one of the best things you can do is tell them to go outside and, and play and just get them outside because when they're outside, then they're more likely to more likely to be active. So it's really taking a look at, you know, your house and saying, okay, what are some simple things potentially that I can do? You know, maybe open your window more during the day. I mean, we live in Florida now, so that's really not going to happen in the summer, but we can potentially do it in the evenings. And then, you know, when, when it begins to, when it begins to cool off and you get that fresh air coming in, I encourage people, if you can't, if you live even in, a, in an urban area and there's not a lot of green around you, outside, we'll bring the green inside and, you know, just get some house plants. Um, you know, I don't have a green thumb, but there's, trust me, there's house plants that you can find that are really difficult to, um, you know, to kill. And the psychology behind it is it puts people in a better mood having green in, in plants in their house. So these are really simple things that, that people can do. And I take a look at technology and how much we're plugged in. And it's a struggle that I have with, with my kids as well. But there's simple things that you can, you know, that you can do even with your phone where you, you know, have um, downtime or where your screen sets off at a certain point or you change actually your screen to a, a grayscale, which I have started to do because some fascinating studies showing that if you go into your phone, into your settings and you change it from a colorful screen, which is what we all all like to a grayscale, just doing that alone will act significantly decrease the amount of time you spend on your phone because it's just not as stimulating when the when the um, when the screen is in gray tones as opposed to these vibrant colors, so I like to do these small little kind of health hacks that will result in some significant health effects for people. Interesting. I actually, it was funny you were just saying about the plants. I last week put out an episode about plants. It was all about house plants and like just the connection to wellness. And she was saying too, like it's great to bring in plants if you're, especially if you're in an urban area. Um, she gave a ton of examples of plants that are great for your house, but she also said like, don't expect your plants to clean your air, open your windows. So I think that's a, a good piece of advice. Yeah. It's not like, don't think that by doing one thing that it's going to, you know, cure everything and have like this incredible effect. It's really an accumulative thing. So yes, having house plants are great but it's not going to be the cure for your, for your air and your environment. But it's one thing that you certainly can do that can certainly help, but also, you know, open your, open your windows as well. Get outside in your yard, get some sunlight, you know, all of these, all of these things have a significant effect over, you know, over time, kind of it's a cumulative thing, but people have this belief that, oh, if I take this one supplement, then it's going to, you know, cure me of all of these, you know, all of these things. And it, it potentially can help, but 
there's a lot more that goes into our health than just one than just one thing. So a lot of what you're saying in this aspect, we were just talking about environment, still has to do with kind of like a mind body connection, right? So, or like a de-stressing too, like getting out in nature and grounding and getting yourself just to move a little bit, and all of that helps us relieve some stress. So, what would you say is the connection or insights that you found? from your research on the mind-body connection in autoimmune diseases? Well, you know, we do see, for example, that people, you know, stress plays a, plays a critical role and that when people are more stressed, then you're more likely to, you're more likely to get sick, especially when people experience what we call chronic stress, which is being in, in you know, your body is just, you know, the heart rate is increased for extended periods, uh, you know, extended periods of time. And we just can't separate. We know that, you know, our thoughts and what we're thinking is directly related to, you know, how we're going to feel and in our overall health. And stress is a really, really big component of it. So I, I tell people, take a look at your day and what you can potentially do to, you know, to reduce your, to reduce your stress. And a really good thing, I'll come back to, yes, getting outside is going to, is going to reduce your stress, but also moving you know, in trying to, in trying to exercise and people will say, well, I don't like to exercise and I don't like to go to the gym. I'll be like, well, that's most people actually don't like to do that, but do things that you like. If you like to go outside for a walk with, with friends, then, then go and then go and do that. And what I try to do, because the number one reason why people don't exercise is they say they don't have the time. So I'll say, well, if we, we, take a look at your last 24 hours. Let's see where we could have potentially fit that in. I tell people to combine stuff. So, you know, if you have a meeting, why not go for a walking meeting? And then you combine, you know, the combine the two together. If you're going to meet a friend, you know, as, as opposed to going and meeting them for coffee, go out for, you know, go out for a walk instead. And I know when I go into the, go into the office, I will often have walking meetings, whether it's with my um, colleagues or with my students. And one of the positives is that the meeting tends to be a lot shorter when, when you do it, when you do it that way. So that's a positive, but then you're getting, you know, you're getting out and getting out of the office. So there's things, you know, things like that, that we can, you know, that we can do to say, okay, well, what can, you know, what can I do to, um, to reduce it. I know people, we spend a lot of time in front of screens. I say, you know, every hour, take a little bit of a break and every hour, try to stand, even if it's for a couple minutes, you know, the sole fact of doing that is really good for our health because we just spend so much time, you know, so much time sitting, which has, you know, significant negative health effects on us. Yeah. It's amazing. I actually just saw a video about how much time we're actually spending sitting down and how much time um, we waste just sitting around, like we're sitting in our car in traffic, we're sitting or driving to work, we're sitting when we get to the office, and then we come home and sit on the couch, and then you lay down. Um, but yeah, I mean, it takes effort to really like incorporate those moments of movement, I think, but yeah, it definitely helps. Yeah, you really have to think about it. You know, in mm -hmm. the average day, the average person spends about eight to 10 hours a day sitting. And there's some situations where we, we just have, we have to sit like, like you said, when, when we're driving, but I say to people, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a meeting, you can, you can stand up and maybe move to the back of it. Or, you know, I joke with my students when I'm lecturing, I said, imagine if I took all the desks away, you'd have to stand. And I know you'd pay a lot more, a lot more attention. And we actually did a, you know, did a study where we had students, one class, it was your traditional class where they sat the other class, they actually had standing desks, which were these little cardboard pop-up standing desks. And the instructor was the, the same. The class was taught in the morning. The content was the same. And what we found, the students that were in the standing desk classroom actually ended up performing better in the class. It had a 
the students had a higher GPA, even though the content was the same. Um, and they reported that they attended more during the lecture. And we actually observed their behavior and found that they were had more on-task behaviors as opposed to off-task behaviors during the lecture, meaning that they were more likely to be focused on the on the professor as opposed to sleeping, which, which does mm-hmm. happen or, you know, looking off or being, being on their phone. So there's some positive things associated just with the mere fact of, you know, standing a little bit more during the day. And what I encourage people to do, if they say, well, it, it's almost impossible for me. I have a job where I need to be, need to be sitting. I encourage them to actually fidget. We think of fidgeting as this negative behavior that means, you know, you're, you're not paying attention or that you're bored. But what this small little group of science is showing is that people who are high fidgeters actually burn significantly more calories a day than people who are people who are not. And it can help with people's focus and their overall their overall health. There was a fascinating study showing that people that were high fidgeters actually ended up living longer. Than, than people who were than people who were not and it has to do with kind of these little micro movements that actually have a, a positive effect over time on our on our health so I, I tell people you know it's the small things that we do during the day that tend to have a cumulative effect over time so yes going to the gym or going outside and exercising is fantastic but take a look also at how much you're standing during the day how much you're fidgeting so if you're even sitting in a movie theater, or watching TV or in a meeting, just like move your move your toes or tap your toes a little bit or your fingers. And that's that can have over time a positive health effect. So unfortunately we tend to look at kind of these big picture things that we need to be doing. And it's oftentimes the small things that have these cumulative effects over time. Definitely. And I think the the fidgeting thing is interesting because I'm a teacher, as I said earlier, and you know, when you see kids who are like fidgeting all the time you kind of feel like, are they paying attention or aren't they? I think, yeah, they tend to, they tend to get a bad rap as being, you know, as being disruptive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then maybe, you, you know, the people who the kids that are the high fidgeters or the students, you know, maybe, you know, they can be potentially sit in the back of the class or just tapping your feet underneath your desk, for example, is not going to be disruptive to someone else. Now, fidget spinners, um, those will be those will be disruptive, and there has been some really well designed studies taking a look at the fidget spinner. And what happens with the fidget spinner is that we tend to focus on the fidget spinner as opposed mm-hmm. to like instructors. So they play a role in reducing boredom, but they don't really help with attending to what you're supposed to be focusing focusing on. So what I say is, yes, fidget spinners are really more of a more of a toy, but but the just like the toe tapping or the finger tapping that is like kind of the true fidgeting that really does help with people's attention. Got it. Perfect. So all of these things that we're talking about, and then I want to get into your personal story with your son, but what we're talking about is getting ourselves into a healthier space, like in our mind and body. And is that really the goal? Is that what's going to, if we have an autoimmune disease or to prevent an autoimmune disease, is that what we're trying to maintain are just these small healthy habits that we continue day after day? typically with like these autoimmune diseases, oftentimes and not always, it's, you know, it's kind of building, you know, over, over time. And then it gets to a point where you just can't ignore it anymore to say, okay, what, what is, what is going on? So if we start, you know, with, with our taking a look at our health behaviors from a young age and kind of keeping them and trying because our our behaviors track. So what I mean by that is if 
you move a lot when you're young, if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables when you're young, if you get enough sleep when you're young, that's going to track with you, meaning that you're more likely to do it when you're a teenager, when you're young adult and an older, older adult. So the younger that you can start these things and keep them going, then the more likely you you are to, to continue on. So I take a look at parents and say, you know, be the be that role model, right? And try to have your, your kids plate, which is tough, you know, 50% should be at least, you know, fruits and, you know, fruits and vegetables and to encourage, you know, types of types of movement. And yes, sport plays a, an important role, but we do know that the kids actually get more activity just by going out and doing, you know, doing, doing free play. So I think it's really important that people, you know, we take a look, for example, at our whole 24 hours within a day. And what I mean by that, like for, from a movement standpoint, is that we really have kind of these four kind of key areas of, of movement. And sleep actually counts as a type of movement. So if you take a look at your 24 hours, are you exercising? Are you standing? More during the day, are you doing light activity? And what is your sleep? Because I can pretty much guarantee if someone doesn't sleep well at night, the next day, they're less likely to exercise and move a lot. They're going to be in a worse mood. They're going to be more stressed and they're probably going to eat worse. So everything is, everything is related and people need to, you know, need to be aware, need to be aware of that. Okay. That's good to, to note. And I think, you know, parenting is hard. Obviously we just, we're speaking about how my kids are very little and your kids are a little older, but it is an easy thing to do is to open the door. If you're in a space where you have outdoor space, I mean, I live in the, I live at the beach, so I am lucky that I have the opportunity to let my kids play outside. But even my friends who live in the city, they still have parks nearby to let the kids just run around free play. Think about what you're having them put into their bodies. I mean, unfortunately, I looked at the um, monthly lunch and breakfast menu for school and our school lunches and breakfasts are not the healthiest, which is sad. I, I'm sure you have seen when you lay, like compare all of the lunches and breakfasts from all different countries across the world to ours and what other kids are eating. Um, and it like, that was depressing for me. So like, we just have to do what we can to help remedy that unhealthy processed food eating, I think is really important. It's important for me at least. Yeah. And it is, it's hard and it's a struggle, you know, as, as, as a parent, but there are, you know, you can get healthier snacks and I tend to order them at, you know, in bulk to have them accessible at home. Mm -hmm. Our youngest son who's 14, he has, um, he eats lunch, you know, at school and it's included within, you know, within this, within the school day. And he basically last year said, mom, I don't like it. It's not very good. It's not very healthy. I want to bring my own lunch. So we actually pack his lunch every day. And is it time consuming? No. Cause what I tend to do at the beginning of the week is I will grill up a lot of chicken or let's say, you know, some type of a meat and he'll have a, a salad every day. And I just literally take it out of the fridge. Cause you can get, you know, your spring mix, you know, lettuce, put that in there, make a homemade dressing, which takes about two seconds. And then off he, off he goes to school. So it doesn't necessarily need to be time consuming. You just need to do some prep at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of the beginning of the week. Yeah. And I think the planning part is a big component because even like we said earlier, planning in the movement, like if you have to plan in the movement, then plan in the movement, like make a calendar for your day and figure out even like three chunks of 10 minute time where you can start moving. Um, and the same thing, like it's Sunday for me. So this is my weekly meal prep day. Like I'll be prepping my food for the week because I pack my own lunch for work. My husband does. And then my kids, I pack their lunches, but I do everything on Sunday so that I'm not stressed during the week trying to figure it out. 
That is so smart, right? And it and there I've heard of several people doing that. And it does, it takes a little bit of prep, but then you want to have more of a stress-free week. And that's a great thing to do on Sunday. Take an hour or two to prep, and then it makes things a lot easier during the day. And you brought up an excellent point about, you know, the exercise and 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And what we do know, and the science is actually really fascinating about this, because one of the number one reasons why people don't exercise, they say they don't have time. So what the science shows is you can do exercise in small little increments and accumulate over the course of a day, over the course of a week. And that is going to have kind of the same health effect. So what I mean by that is if you don't have, you know, 30 minutes or, or 60 minutes, kind of a chunk during the day, you can do, let's say 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at lunch, 10 minutes in the evening to get that 30 minutes, 30 minutes a day. And some fascinating research is showing that these quick little bursts, even a minute or two, uh, of exercises having significant health effects. And that can be as simple, guys, as unloading your groceries because that's some resistance, um, you know, almost like a weight training and walking them into the house or going up and down, up and down the stairs um, just for a minute or two. And it accumulates over the day, has significant health effects. Perfect. Those are some good tips. So I do want to get into your personal story, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Um, so your son was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 16, and I'm sure it was very stressful dealing with a child who was sick, um, but you did your own research and you kind of came up with some strategies to help him heal. So how is he doing currently and how did you get him here? So he he's actually doing great. He is, uh, you know, um, he's now twenty. He's now twenty one, and he's in he's in college, and he's uh, he's doing great. And from you know the tests that we have had done on him, he has you know no inflammation, like very little inflammation left in his body. And what we say he is now in in remission. And our path with with that when he was diagnosed when he was sixteen. I could even have told you what Crohn's disease was. I'd seen commercials, you know, on it with, you know, take this type of medication, but I couldn't have told you what exactly it was. So it really kind of rocked, rocked our world. He got sick fairly quickly over the fall of his, um, of his junior year junior year of high school. And we just couldn't understand what was, what was going on. We at first thought that maybe he was really stressed because he started, he stopped going out on the weekends with his, with his, with his friends and was just staying at the house. He was missing a lot of school and we just couldn't understand what was going on. We thought, is it the flu? You know, what, what could it actually, what could it actually be? But at the, um, you know, kind of in the middle of the fall, he finally, you know, finally confessed and said, I, you know, have to go to the bathroom a lot during the day and the amount that he was going, I was like, there's clearly something wrong. And that was why he was staying in the house um, a lot. So we kind of fast tracked him through the system to get the diagnosis of, of Crohn's disease. And the day that he was diagnosed, we had what I call this full court press of meetings with this healthcare team. And the last meeting we had during the day was with the dietitian, which I was actually looking forward to because I thought if he's spending significant portion of his day in the bathroom, you can't tell me that what he's eating is not playing some type of a role. And the, the dietitian started off the conversation saying that he can eat anything. And I just sat there and I didn't know what to say, but I'm like, this doesn't feel right. And she's like, he can eat, you know, white bread and, and fast food. And I'm like, really? And my son, of course, pipes up and says, can I still eat Chick-fil-A? And she's like, yes. I'm like, this just doesn't sound right. So when we left and I had some time to reflect the next day, 
I began to research it because that's what that's what I do. And it was really difficult for me because I'm I'm a health psychologist and I'm supposed to be healthy. My family's supposed to be healthy. And then all of a sudden we're not. And I had the ability to to take a look at the research. And I quickly realized that the medication that he was put on is not going to help him. So we got him off of that fairly quickly and just dramatically changed his dramatically changed his diet. And all within three weeks, we could see significant improvements, which just continued, continued over, you know, over time. But I really attribute it to us changing his um, changing his diet and making sure that he was getting, um, you know, getting enough sleep and really being on him to make sure that he was eating as healthy as he, you know, as healthy as possible. Cause he still, he still at that point was, was a teenager. And, and, and now he really, he does really get it. And for the most part, you know, he does a lot of his own cooking at university and, and follows what I would say is a, is a healthy diet. He doesn't follow like a specific type of diet now, but he eats, um, you know, just really a lot of organic, a lot of whole, you know, whole foods and makes a lot of his food on his, on his own. So that's what for him, I largely attribute, you know, his success was not the medication, which unfortunately I was able to read the research and know that it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to help him and knew that changing his diet was what we needed to, what we needed to do. To do, and I look back and I think, okay, I can see what some of the the triggers were and what some of the causes were, but we just didn't piece it all together until he was just so sick. Would you mind sharing what you like looking back in hindsight? What some of those triggers may have been? I think for him, it was early antibiotic use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ear infections when he was really young threw off his basically threw off his gut microbiome and it kind of continued, you know, continued over, over time. I think that was a big trigger for him and that he just couldn't, you know, recuperate from that. And there's some, a decent amount of science now showing that things like early antibiotic use can be related to certain types of autoimmune diseases like, like Crohn's disease. And then, you know, just that the diet in and of itself and the, you know, and the stress associated with, you know, with being, being a teenager, cause he didn't eat the, he didn't eat the best, you know, the best diet. And what happened for him in the fall of his junior year, when he went back to school, he, he got sick again. And we just, there was, we couldn't figure out what it was. And the doctor put him on an antibiotic and he didn't need an antibiotic. And I think that was just the beginning of the end for him. And within a month, that was it. He, he basically couldn't even leave the house. Got it. And I wanted to go back to your point about the fact that he has really no inflammation left in his currently. Um, so are autoimmune diseases, are you able to reverse them completely or, um, and I don't know if you can even speak to this as a whole for them, or if this is just specific to Crohn's, but is there a point where you could be in a hundred percent remission from autoimmune diseases? So that, that's a really good question. And it's difficult to give, uh, you know, there's different schools of thought where some people will say, you know, once you have an autoimmune disease, you'll, you'll always, you'll always have it. You can have it go into remission where you don't have any symptoms and, and visible types of symptoms, but you still have some level of inflammation within your body. Now I know, for example, specifically with Crohn's, you have, you know, what's, what's called clinical remission where you're not showing any clinical signs of the disease, but you can, you'll probably still have a little bit of inflammation left within your, within your body and your colon. But there's a group now, uh, and there's some research showing this aspect called deep remission where you have no inflammation left within your within your body and that there's a group of people saying yes you can 
then become cured, you know, cured from it. So it's difficult to give a firm answer because there's different schools of thought associated, you know, associated with it. And for testing for inflammation, what does that look like? And do you suggest, would you suggest that people or have you tested your own self for inflammation, even though you may not have an autoimmune disease? Actually, I have, and I have with uh, my other, with my other boys as well to kind of be proactive. And that for us has come from going to a functional medicine doctor and getting, um, not what you'd get from your standard, you know, going to your standard or traditional, you know, doctor or healthcare team to get really a full, a full panel to see, okay, is there inflammation and all these different types of inflammation markers within the body to see where, where there may be issues and where adjustments can be made. Is it, you know, is it hormonal? Is there some like toxins, for example, are you low in certain, you know, vitamins and minerals within your body? So it's really taking a look at kind of this complete picture to say, okay, what do I need to do then to get kind of these inflammation markers down lower within, you know, within my, um, within my body, maybe it's related. I need to potentially exercise more. I need to sleep more. I need to change my diet, maybe eat certain, you know, certain types of foods, eliminate others. And it's really a process and it, and it is doing, it, it is doing detective work and it does take, you know, it does take time. But worth it, I'm sure. But hundred percent, a hundred percent worth it. And it's really, really eye-opening when you actually do this and you get your results back. Cause I think we should be, you know, fact oriented with our health and not just randomly say, well, I'm going to start this type of diet just because I think we need to take a look at, at what's going on inside our bodies to say, okay, what is the best thing for me? Do I have any types of triggers, any type of, you know, for example, food allergies, what are the best things for me to do? And it's so funny because I'm sure it's could be costly to go through through that type of testing or to see a functional doctor who does not take insurance. I mean, I know that these are like common concerns with a lot of people, but then again, people spend so much money on things that are unhealthy for us, like takeout and Starbucks and whatever else we're buying for ourselves. So, um, you know, it's just interesting how, and this comes back to the psychology of it, that so many people are not willing to spend the money on themselves. It, that was so well said. And that's, it's so true because people say, oh, I'm not going to spend that type of money. It's expensive. I'll be like, well, it's also expensive when you get a disease or you're not feeling good and you have to miss work. So why not be proactive on the, on the, on the front end? And now things, you know, slowly the prices are going down. We can do a lot of testing, you know, on our own. There's kits that you can buy, for example, you know, just on, on Amazon, you know, if, if money is a concern. So there's those types of things also that can be done. And I tell people, you know, a really good way to take a look at your overall health is your skin. You know, what is your skin like? How, you know, does it look healthy? Does it, does it not? Cause that's kind of the window into, you know, into, into yourself. So yes, things can be expensive, but there's ways to, there's ways to get around that also and to try to be a little more proactive. I know someone out there is listening and wants to know a follow-up on the skin question. So I'm just going to ask it. So are you talking about like acne or are you talking about eczema or are we talking about anything that's manifesting through our skin? Anything that's manifesting through our skin. It could be acne. It can be rosacea. It can be eczema. Those are oftentimes related. Yeah, they're related to what's going on inside of, inside of our bodies. So if somebody has acne, well, or, or rosacea, the question is why it's probably to, 
to, you know, probably coming down to inflammation. Maybe there's certain types of foods that you're eating or not eating that your that your body needs. Um, and, and it's really interesting, you know, even even physical activity. Research has shown that people who are physically active tend to have better skin than people who who do not. And you kind of get that that glow, right? So it's really this whole kind of, you know relationship. If people don't sleep well, guaranteed the next day, their skin's not going to look as good, right? They're physically, and there's been some fascinating studies showing that, that um, showing pictures, right? Of people who have not gotten a good night's sleep versus people who have. And the people who have not gotten a good night's sleep are always rated as looking less healthy than people who, people who have. So all of these things are related. It's not just, you know, putting the cream on your cream on your skin. It's what you're actually ingesting within your body and what you're actually actually doing. So yeah, I really do feel like skin is kind of the, the window into people's health. Yes. And it's so interesting because um, I think many people probably have had this experience where you have a skin issue, go to the dermatologist, not that you shouldn't go, I go to the dermatologist, but, and then they're prescribing like a $700 cream to combat whatever the skin issue is when realistically, you can probably figure out how to remedy it yourself. But a lot of people want that quick fix, the Band-Aid. We do want that quick fix. We do want that Band-Aid. And sometimes we have this fallacy that the more expensive the cream is, the better it, but the better it's going to be. And that's something topical. And I almost think oftentimes it's almost a Band-Aid solution where it may, it may help temporarily, but it's not getting at what the root cause of, of the issue is. And it's really so important to get at that root cause. Definitely. What are some other common misconceptions, since we're kind of talking about that now, um, or myths about autoimmune diseases that we can debunk a bit? Well, I, you know, the comment, you know, the thing when you, we take a look at how many they, there are, right, and that 75% of people that are affected are, are women, there is a small genetic component. But when you say that, when I hear constantly that, that it's chronic, that you'll have it for the rest of your life and that it's not treat, it's not treatable really. I think that makes people feel almost like, oh my gosh, like hopeless. But I think when people can take and empower themselves and say, okay, if I can take a look at my day and what I'm doing and be proactive, that it's going to have an effect on my, on my overall health. I think that we need to give the power back to, back to people. A lot of people will think that autoimmune diseases are contagious and, and they're not, and they're not infectious um, as well. So I think that's important for people to, you know, for people to know as well. Um, I do think, like you said, when you get a diagnosis like this, it does feel really overwhelming. And then you're stuck now in the cycle of feeling stressed because you have a disease, which is essentially exacerbated by stress. So it I, I think getting out of that cycle or just going into it with the mindset that you can help yourself out of that cycle is so helpful. So what are, I mean, you've shared so many tips throughout the interview, but are there any more like actionable steps that you would recommend for listeners who might be dealing with an autoimmune disease or just supporting someone who's dealing with one? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, to, to slow down as well. And this is something that I, that I, that I've struggled with and what I, when our son was first diagnosed and it, it was, it was, it was a challenging time. And I knew that expressing gratitude had a lot of positive health effects. So when I woke up in the morning, I would actually write down three things that I was grateful for. And this might sound like kind of a hokey, you know, <laughs> woo woo, thing, yeah. to, thing to do. 
And trust me, I had to dig deep. And some days it would be just having my morning cup of coffee that I was thankful for. But the sole, fa- the sole fact of doing that actually has positive health effects for people. And that's such a simple, simple thing to do. So express gratitude. And it doesn't cost any money to do that. You can write it out on a piece of paper. There's gratitude journals that are available. And, and I had always had a hard time with this taking time for myself, which is really, which is really important, especially when you're a mom and you've got kids and you, and you're working and I would go and do yoga and I'd be the person that would leave at the end of the yoga class, like before the vinyasa where you're, you're lying on the mat and like focusing on breathing or, or whatever. And I'm like, who has time for that? But actually I started to stay and it actually really helped just that couple minutes of, of being still. I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. So for people I say, there's a lot of apps now, for example, that you can, you can get meditation apps or, or breathing apps, or if you can't get to do like yoga, then you can look at a, a YouTube video and do it within your, you know, and do it within your own house to see what will, what will work for you. But I think also for, for people, it's important to, to take some time to slow down, slow down a little bit. And then what I also, um, started to do before bed as opposed to watching TV, I started to read as well. And usually within a couple of minutes, I would be, I would be fast asleep. So it's really taking a look at all these positive, you know, positive things that you can potentially do, but it's the small things that can have large impacts over, over time. And the slowing down is really important. Yeah. Like getting out of that, um, very excited state, whether it's stress, anger, frustration, which we find ourselves in obviously daily, all of us, but um, I always reference breath work because that's like my slowdown. And just yesterday I posted a a little video on Instagram and it was like, my kids are driving me nuts. And I just left the room, took a few deep breaths. And like, I just call it getting my power back because you feel it just like draining out of you. And I'm like, I'm going to explode because no one's listening. It's so noisy. And like, it's just crazy. But even just like two seconds of breathing, one minute of breathing, and just slowing down really does make such a difference. That is that is so smart that you that you do that and that you did that. And it, it's so true. People think, okay, I've got to go and do some breathing exercise for thirty minutes. No, it can be as simple as taking a couple of deep breaths, and that will reset you. So we have this fallacy that we have to do these things that are going to take so long. But no, it's just these kind of simple, simple things. That it, it reminds me of when when our, our son was sick and we had a lot of stress in the house. We ended up actually getting getting a dog. And having a pet is, believe it or not, people who have pets tend to report less stress. And if you don't want to get a dog, it can be a cat. It can be as simple as a fish. And just having that pet reduces, you know, reduces people's, tends to reduce people's, people's stress levels. And we do know that people have dogs will walk more than people that, people that don't. So I say, you know, it might be the best gym membership that you ever buy is, is getting a, is getting a pet like a dog. I um, am not specifically a pet person, but I do know most people who have pets do feel that way. And like you said, like you're forced to get up and walk the dog and move around and play with the dog and take care of something. So yes, that's a, that's good, a good tip. Um, I don't know if you could put this into like one thing and probably not, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Do you think that it is more important if you are faced with this type of disease to think about de-stressing first or eating healthy first? Okay. I have to think about this. I don't even know are, if you can answer. It's really an yeah, opinion. It, that, that's a tough, that, that's a tough one. Um, 
if I had to, to pick one over the other, I would probably say the food. Um, because if you begin to eat healthier, then it's, it, your stress level is probably going to go down because you're going to, you're going to be feeling, you're going to be feeling better. So I probably say that, but it's really hard to say what, you know, what health behavior trumps the, trumps the other, because they all are, they all are related. And if we take a look at the main causes of why we're, we're, we're dying early, it's our behaviors. The top three are whether we smoke or not, how much we, we exercise and, and our diet. And since more and more people are, are not smoking, cause we've done a really good mm-hmm. job here in, in decreasing the amount of people that smoke pretty soon, you know, our diet and our exercise level is going to overtake that. So I say, tell people, you know, empower them that you really do have control over your, over your health. And that comes down to your behaviors. And like you said, as you start eating healthier, um, you definitely will start feeling better, which will help you with the stress component too. I mean, it's just, it's like all a cycle. And like you said, with the sleep, like once you start sleeping better, then you'll feel more energy to want to move more. So it's all connected. Exactly. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you actually, before I go into this last component, um, Do you, would you say that there are some warning signs? I wanted to ask you this earlier. Warning signs, like what should that things that are happening in our bodies that we should be like taking note of and not just ignoring? Um, that's a good question. Um, and what I like to, to tell people is it, it, it's taking a long time, right? It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen overnight. And your bathroom habits tell you a lot about your overall health in particular, not to talk, you know, too much about it, but your, but number two yeah. is really reflecting your overall health. There are actually stool charts that are out there that will show you, and you can look at it visually to see what the consistency of your stools should be. And that's a really a window into your health. So I tell people, pay attention to that. If it's too hard or if it's too soft, that's not, that's not good. And if it's, and if it's consistent, then it's telling you that there's something wrong. And then people say, well, how many times should I be going to the bathroom? And it, there's a big variation, but the average person should be going somewhere between, you know, three times a week to 21 times a week. That's considered average. So if you're going less than that or more than that, there's probably maybe some, something that you might want to take, you know, take a look at. So these are things that I encourage people, these things that we don't like to talk about that potentially we should be talking about. I think that if we were more open about talking about our stool, we would have earlier indications of people's, you know, people's overall health. Have you had um, a personal experience, whether it's with your yourself or a client or whomever who have used those stool tester kits, like the at-home kits? Not, not personally. I know people have looked at kind of this, it's called this Bristol stool chart that's easily available on, okay. you know, on the internet. I'll like and that you can just, you just type in Bristol stool chart, it'll pop up. And it's a category of six different kind of consistencies of stool with like a little visual and you could easily like see and be able to pinpoint from your, from, from yourself, whether there may be some type of an issue going, you know, going okay. on. That's good. Good to know. I mean, that's something that we can all take control of on, on our own, at least like you said, um, using facts to figure out and like be our little detectives of our own body, I think is so important. And not just ignoring things that, you know, you know, if you haven't gone to the bathroom in five days, something is wrong. So you something need to is- figure it out. And it's I think a lot of people just want to ignore it because they don't know where to start. 
It, you know what? Exactly. And I want to encourage people, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, the, the wellness industry is a big, big industry right now, you know, 4.3, I think, billion dollar industry. And there's not a lot of it is backed by science. And I encourage people to, to try to get behind whether it's brands or people out there that have the expertise and the knowledge, maybe, you know, because there's so many influencers out there that are promoting different health wellness, whether they're products or things to do that don't have the background and the expertise. So try to get behind people that have, whether it's the PhD or the MD or the, the, you know, the certification or so that you're getting behind somebody who's giving you reliable science-based health and wellness information. I think that is really important. And that's part of my, my passion over my career. I've spent a lot of time talking to the media to say, this is what the science says, you know, about, about, um, you know, a certain health wellness topic. And I, I write, which I write now, um, an article twice a week on some health wellness topic that is science-based and that is free to free to anybody on, on Substack and they can go and take a look at, take a look at that. I pull different topics out there that tends to oftentimes be getting a lot of media attention. I'll be like, well, what does the science really say, you know, about this topic, kind of the myth versus reality behind a lot of health wellness things that we have out there. I know it's just, it's like all consuming with the amount of information that's out there, but so much of it is, not not that it's incorrect, but like you said, it's just not based in any sort of research and it's just people promoting products that aren't the greatest or aren't third party tested or like you have no idea what's in them. So you it, exactly. And, you know, oftentimes influencers, that's how they make their money is by mm-hmm. promoting these types of these these products. But I do spend a lot of time, you know, reviewing and researching certain types of products as well to see which are science based and which aren't. OK, so. We, you said that um, people can find your articles on Substack. Where yes. else can they find more information about you, your book, and your work? Yeah, so they can go to uh, Wellness Discovery Labs. That's my website where I have information on, you know, health wellness research, the research that I've done, um, the books that I have written. I've also created uh, several science-based health wellness journals, whether you want to, you know, reduce your stress and anxiety or, you know, what you're eating or track your food or express, you know, gratitude or take a look at how much you're moving and standing during the day. I've created these very inexpensive, simple ways to, to, to track your, your behavior to set you on the right track for, for your health, whatever your health goal is. And those are also available on the website. Awesome. And what about social media? Can, are you active in a certain place? I am on LinkedIn and also Instagram. Okay, great. Um, Heather, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. I really appreciate your time and all your wisdom. And I hope that this helped at least one person, which I know it will. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And thank you for everything you do for the wellness community. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening today. You can check out the show notes to find out important info from today's episode. You can also support the show by subscribing, share an episode with somebody you love, or give me a review over on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with me, you can always find me on Instagram at expandwithnicole. I really appreciate you all so much, and I cannot wait to share more wellness and lifestyle content with you on the next episode.